Welcome. It's Michael James Lauren with the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. We have another special guest, Robert J. Hutchinson. Searching for Jesus is the name of the book, New Discoveries in the Quest for Jesus of Nazareth and How They Confirm the Gospel Accounts. He's kind of a modern-day Indiana Jones, and he goes to great lengths to proving that the gospel is true with uh, uh, real-life excavations, if you will, and also he has the backing of some big scholars like N.T. Wright, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, if you ever have a problem talking to skeptics, this book is going to help. And welcome to the program, Robert. Uh, thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on your show. Yes, it's our pleasure, I can tell you that. And your book begins with, uh, it kind of makes me a little jealous here, it says, it's a warm, sunny day in northern Israel, and I'm sitting on the railing of a fishing boat as we slowly make our way along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so right there, I'm jealous, Robert. <laughs> yes, well, I, I really wanted to do that. You know, I think more people should, should make a pilgrimage to Israel, and a lot of people haven't, and I, I really tried to, to bring Israel alive. I've been a longtime supporter of Israel. I used to live in Israel when I was younger. And I, I wish more Christians, especially, uh, had the time and the money uh, to go there uh, and see it for themselves. And I think it, it just blows your mind. Anybody who's been to Israel, it, it totally changes you, no matter what your outlook is before you go. Once you've gone there and you've seen uh, everything with your own eyes, it, I, I do think it transforms you. That I believe. I want to ask, though, how much does it bring the Bible alive or, you know, really come off the page when you go to Israel? What does that do? Well, it just makes everything so real. I mean, everything is so close, for one thing. I mean, uh, uh, you don't quite realize, especially, I think I say this in the book, when you're out on the Sea of Galilee, and you can see how small an area it actually is. I mean, it's just this, uh, the, the, the northern, uh, like the north western tip of the Sea of Galilee has been kept very pristine. I mean, it's very, the Israelis are smart. They they have left that alone. They haven't developed it. If you look backwards from, uh, if you're on a boat, you'll see uh, Tiveria, the, the Israeli resort town, uh, which was uh, actually around in Jesus' time. Uh, that has been developed, and there's all sorts of new condominium developments and things like that. But the actual area around, you know, Capernaum and all that, uh, area has been kept very pristine, and, and it still looks much the same uh, as it was in the time of, uh, of Jesus or Yeshua. And, uh, and I think that really shocks people when they finally go there and they see it and they can be in the places. And the old Holy Land joke is, and I also quote this, say this in my book, is if it didn't happen here, it happened 100 yards from here. <laughs> right. So, uh, uh, and actually, that's not even true in itself. I mean, Capernaum, they, they actually are pretty confident that they um, uh, know where Peter's house was. Um, and it's a pretty small area, and the ruins there are just astonishing. Uh, people actually lived in townhouses. They called them insula. Uh, they were connected houses, and they had roofs and everything, and they're maybe 20 feet from the lake shore. And um, they're, they're very confident. One particular house had all sorts of Christian graffiti all over it, uh, dating from like the 3rd century. And so they're pretty, they, they're pretty confident that this particular house was likely the home of Peter, uh, where Jesus had stayed. Yes, and this is the thing that makes your job uh, so amazingly interesting, is that you get up and close and personal with the historical accounts of the Scriptures. And so I have to ask, do you think that that would bring more people to faith in Jesus, or should there be more of an interest in these historical accounts? 
Oh, uh, no, yeah, well, yes and no. I think they don't really know. I mean, I don't think they know. I mean, they've been told for so long, for about a century or so, they've, uh, people have been trying to debunk the Gospels, and so people have gotten this mistaken idea that the latest scholarly research is all opposed to uh, the Gospels and everything, and really it's just the opposite. A uh, hundred years ago, or 150 years ago, people were highly skeptical of the historical aspects of the Gospels. They thought a lot of it was just made up. Uh, but increasingly, scholars, and I'm, I'm talking about not necessarily Christian scholars, uh, Jewish scholars, agnostic scholars at major universities, uh, have taken just the opposite view. And in the last 10 or 20 years especially, they've come full circle, and now they increasingly believe uh, that, uh, I wouldn't say they think everything in the New Testament is historically accurate, but they increasingly believe uh, that the basic portrait of Jesus as portrayed in the Gospels is far more plausible on strictly historical grounds than a lot of the wild speculations that people had in the 19th century and so on. And uh, that's been a, a, a revolution in, in New Testament studies. And that hasn't really filtered down to the people in the pews. And one of the reasons I wrote this book was I was re- reading all these scholars, all these experts, because I've been obsessed with this my entire life. I, I, I moved to Israel in my early 20s to study Hebrew precisely because I've been obsessed with this. And, um, and so I, in the last Ten years or so, I've been reading these just revolutionary books by these scholars, uh, Daniel Boyarin, Jewish scholar, and N.T. Wright, people like that. And and it hadn't been filtered down in the media. The people in the media continue to parrot these ideas that are like a century old, as if they're the cutting edge of scholarship, when in fact they're the opposite. They're They're obsolete. And so I just kind of gathered together some of the insights and the latest discoveries in my book presented for a popular audience, because I am not a biblical scholar myself. I just play one on TV. I'm, no, I'm just kidding. I, yeah, just, right. I, just, <laughs> I just, I know these people, uh, or I, I interview them, I talk to them, I read their books, um, uh, but they're a very strange breed, and they write for each other, and so a lot of their insights don't get down to the people in the pews, and it's a shame, because they really are, they have some astonishing insights that would really get people excited. The problem is they write 800 or 1,000 page books uh, with lots of Greek and Hebrew in them, and they're hard to read. So um, uh, I see my job is translating their discoveries into English. Okay, and having said that, who is this book really for? I know that you reach a lot of skeptics, certainly, and getting to debunk these myths you talk about. Who is the book for? I basically am writing for skeptics. I've been published by an evangelical Christian publisher, so actually a lot of the people who buy my book are already believing Christians, and I'm sort of preaching to the converted. I, I have, when I started this project, I was really had more skeptics in mind, modern people that, uh, you know, really don't have any faith. They're not necessarily hostile. Uh, they just simply don't know, you know, and, and once I get talking about it, they frequently are astonished because they hadn't heard any of this stuff before. And um, so, yeah, I kind of see myself as, as speaking to the unchurched more than to the churched, uh, and uh, it's a challenge to do that because you're, uh, you know, you're writing for two different communities. They have different needs, you know. And uh, but I try to do that in my book. I try to write for everybody, not just 
believing Christians or, or uh, Messianic people, but also, you know, skeptics or unchurched people who don't know what they believe, and, and I, I try to address everybody's questions. Robert, I want to ask you a question. Having spent so much time in Israel, are you surprised when Christians finally do make the trip, uh, they find it to be just a regular place? Instead of the Bible opening up to them somehow, they, they're surprised. It's really just a modern place, isn't it? Yeah, well, I always warn people, actually, when they go to Israel, I say, look, you know, Israel is a modern country, and, you know, it's got ugly sides, too, and you're going to go through a a negative culture shock when you first get there. When you come out in Tel Aviv, and, you know, you're going to see trash on the side of the road, and you're going to see there's going to be rude cheroot drivers, uh, and Israelis can be absolutely obnoxious. And I said, you know, a lot of pilgrim types who go to Israel just get a very negative at first. First couple of days, they say, what am I doing? This place is horrible. Uh, It's just nothing like I expected. But if they're there long enough, it takes a couple of days when they can see past that, and then they start going to the the Holy Land places. They go to Nazareth. They go to Jerusalem. They spend some time, and then pretty soon they become acclimated. But Israel is a third-world country, and it's a lot poorer in many ways respects than North America and Canada and the United States. And so it, there's a culture shock that people will get if, they, if they're not prepared for it. And I always warn them, uh, be prepared for that. You know, you're going to see it, feel it, especially if you're going there as a pious pilgrim. Uh, and, and you've got to just give yourself a couple of days to get acclimated. And very soon it will go away. And by the end of your trip, you don't, you're not going to want to leave. You're going to try and figure out how, how can you come back. So um, I always warn people about that because it is a modern country and it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a modern kind of semi-third world country, not really third world, maybe second world or something. And it's got its issues. It's got social problems just like everybody else. And they just, you just have to be prepared for that. One of the things that you do, and it's the reason why you're a very well-known author, is that you take painstaking accounts <laughs> to make sure you present the Gospels and, and the account of the Bible very clearly and well-detailed, and that's why scholars certainly endorse you. Uh, you have a, a chapter here, are the Gospels forgeries, and tell us a little bit about that chapter. Yeah, well, well, first of all, I, I kind of wanted to do that chapter because of Bart Ehrman's alleged debunking of uh, Bart Ehrman. I don't know if you, if your listeners know who he is, but he is a, a former evangelical Christian uh, who who went to seminary and lost his faith uh, slowly, and he was a textual critic, and that is someone who actually specializes in figuring out uh, what the official text is of the Greek. New Testament by studying the manuscripts that we have. We have 5,800 Greek uh, manuscripts of the New Testament, and what people don't realize is that um, uh, is that, that this, this whole science developed in around the time of the Reformation and later, uh, where when people decided that they were going to check and see if the Latin Bible of the Catholic Church was accurate or not, because they started finding Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, and they, they knew that you know the, the Latin Bible, the, the vernacular Bible of the Western Church, had been translated from Greek, and they were finding these old manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, so they started checking, uh, seeing if, it, if the translations were accurate or not, and they found differences. Uh, uh, Jerome, who translated the New Testament into Latin, was a great scholar. He had uh, access to only certain Greek manuscripts and so on. 
And uh, so, they, so the science of textual criticism was born, where people started collecting every Greek manuscript they could find and looking through them to see, you know, what the most accurate translation of the text was. And that's what Bart Ehrman's book is about and claims that there's all these inaccuracies and discrepancies and all these errors and so on. But the reality is, I found out, is that, that it's a tempest in a teapot because we have Greek manuscripts on papyrus going back to within maybe 50 years of the original, uh, and that's unlike anything we have with any other ancient book. I mean, the earliest manuscripts we have of Plato date from like the 1100s A.D. or 900s A.D. We only have five or six of them or eight or ten of them or something like that. Uh, almost any historical book we have are a thousand to 1500 years removed from when it was written. But with the New Testament, because they were preserved and considered you know, sacred books, they, we have 5,800 manuscripts, and some of them date back to the second century, uh, one or two to the early uh, 100s and so on, the Gospel of John. I think it was uh, about 30 to 40 years after the, the first one was put to paper. So there is a temporal proximity to the New Testament that is just unmatched by anything else. Scholars who really study this are pretty confident that we have the original text of the New Testament either above or below the line, either in the official text that's published by the, uh, uh, the, the group in Germany that's charged with coming up with the official New Testament text, or in one of the variant readings in the footnotes, one of the two or the other. So, so they're pretty, pretty confident that we're pretty close to the original. And as if that weren't enough, you're talking about now skeptics who believe not in preserved words, as you've mentioned, but in a secret message. And somehow people fall for that when they look at the Gnostic Gospels and say, well, that must be where the real article is in a secret type of message. How do you get through to those people? What do you say to people who believe in a skeptic or a Da Vinci Code, I should say, type of Gnostic? Uh, What would you say to them? Well, you could tell them, like, hey, you know, there's nothing secret about it. You can read every single one we have. <laughs> uh, probably, there's five or six or seven books that publish every single one in their entirety, and I invite them to go read them. And if you read them, you'll discover that, uh, you know, what Irenaeus said in the second century uh, when he condemned these books, you'll, you'll, that he was exactly right. They're obviously fraudulent. Uh, they're bizarre. They're, they're misogynistic and anti-female. Um, they were written by sects of uh, kind of Greek pagans who had a very nihilistic view of the world and decided that the, there was the world of spirit and the world of matter and the, the world as we know it was created by an evil god, a demiurge, and uh, the, the whole point of life was to escape the body and get back to the upper heavenly realms and so on. They were written two or three, four hundred years after Jesus, and they basically just took the canonical Gospels that we have in our Bible and rewrote them and put the words of their bizarre theosophical theories into the mouth of Jesus. And they're mostly totally unreadable, uh, with the exception of the Gospel of Thomas, which does have a few interesting tidbits and may claim one or two pieces of new information about Jesus. With the exception of the Gospel of Thomas, they have almost no use whatsoever in terms of going back to the original Jesus. Um, and they've been actually a huge disappointment for New Testament scholars who are interested in Jesus. They tell you a lot about 
these groups, Gnostics and so on, that arose very early after Christianity, but they tell us almost nothing about Jesus. So to a skeptic, I would say, hey, I've got a copy, I've got a copy in my library. You can read everyone cover to cover in an afternoon, and uh, you can learn all the secrets that the church allegedly suppressed, <laughs> which is that one of them is that women are not going to go to heaven, and they must be changed into men so they can go to heaven. Uh, you can you can read all of that and determine whether the church suppressed these things or if they contain the real truth about Jesus, and you'll quickly decide uh, that they're not even worth reading. Part of the tension for many believers is getting the message of the gospel and, of course, their own testimony to people that they believe and that the gospels are real, that Jesus is real. The frustration is getting through that wall that people have. And in particular, you know, for me at least, being a Messianic Jew, getting through to family members and other people, how, do, how would you suggest the best way to go about reaching Jewish people with the gospel is so that people's eyes are open? The problem with many evangelicals evangelizing Jews is they try to say, well, this, this prophecy in Isaiah refers to Jesus, and then a Jewish person will look at that and say, well, you know, I don't think that was actually writing about Jesus. I think you're just twisting the text to, to refer to Jesus. And I think a better way to explain it to them is that the early Christians searching the scriptures and reading these prophecies said this, pro- this prophecy obviously applies to Jesus. It fits Jesus, what Jesus is all about, the suffering servant and so on. And regardless of what the prophet himself had in his own mind, this does fit Jesus. And, and so it's less a prophecy fulfilled in the sense that Isaiah had Jesus in mind when he gave this oracle. God may have had Jesus in mind when he gave this oracle, but it's not necessary to believe that Isaiah had Jesus in mind. And that's a distinction that I find very helpful when talking to sophisticated Jews who know their, their Bible, they know their Torah. Uh, that, that helps them a lot. The liberal distinction I would make, the whole concept of Messiah may not have fit Jesus perfectly. It was an imperfect category that Jesus was reluctant to actually accept because many Jews had a view of the Messiah as a conquering hero, a militaristic person who would come in and and conquer Israel's enemies, and that didn't fit what Jesus was about. That wasn't the kind of Messiah that Jesus was about. And, And so, as a result... When, when Jewish people say, well, there's these various uh, categories of what a Messiah is, and Jesus didn't fulfill them, and therefore he's not the Messiah, I would say, well, that, that could be, because some of those categories uh, wasn't what Jesus was talking about. It was an approximation. It, it, he was bigger than the concept of Messiah, okay? Messiah fit in, in, in a very real way, and he was the Messiah, but maybe not in the sense that the people at the time thought the Messiah was. So when Jewish people come up and say, it's, it's clear from the Messianic prophecies that uh, the Messiah will restore the kingdom of Israel and, and, and all the people of the earth will worship the God of Israel uh, in his lifetime. And well, you can say, well, that, they could have gotten that impression, but that isn't what Jesus was about. And that's why the, the concept of Messiah is only an approximation. He was much bigger than that. Uh, but in my conversations with uh, secular Jews, they've never even heard that before. Uh, mm-hmm. th- that's a shocking suggestion. And, oh, well, I, I have to look at that again. You know, and they, they're will- it, it, it lets them, even if they ultimately rejected it, that it makes them think in a way that they maybe haven't thought before. 
Yes, Christians, we can be very sure, so confident that we know the Bible is without error. And of course, I believe that, and many people who are listening believe that. But uh, how sympathetic should we be to the skeptic who really doesn't believe or doesn't have a reason to believe or uh, has all kinds of doubts and we don't know where they stem from? Uh, What kind of sympathy can we have for the skeptic? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sympathetic to the skeptics in the world. I mean, you know, Jesus, we have no independent corroboration of the of the New Testament for a hundred years after. Uh, there are no non-Christian writings about Jesus for about a hundred years after the crucifixion. Uh, you know, so basically, if you want to know about Jesus, all we have is the New Testament. And so skeptics will say, well, that's all very nice, but we don't have any other corroborating uh, evidence. So, um, uh, and, and so for, for people that say we can prove the events of the New Testament historically or we can prove the resurrection, uh, that's, a, that's a very hard thing to do in, in terms if you're using the same standards of proof as mainstream historians use. So, so basi- basically it is a leap of faith for people to trust the New Testament. And I think it's a rational leap of faith, but it is a leap of faith. And I, I think it is a mistake uh, from an even evangelistic point of view, to not acknowledge those problems and those doubts, and 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 to say that these these the New Testament was written on the fly, oftentimes uh, the letters of Saint Paul were were not he didn't realize he was writing scripture, you know, he was dictating to a scribe, and all all the problems that when you go to graduate school or seminary you learn about these problems. I think we should put these out on the table and acknowledge them. When uh, the armchair atheist thinks uh, that he's got uh, some big point, you know, you'll just simply say, we've, we've known this for a thousand years, for two thousand years. You're not telling anybody anything we don't already know. You know, they often act like they've got this big discovery that Christian biblical scholars have known everything they say for about two thousand years. <laughs> So my point of view is to is to be real upfront about it and say, oh sure, there's lots of problems. You know, of course there's reasons to be skeptical. You know, that's just yes. that's just the nature of of um, of the case of 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 how Christianity arose and and all that. So that that's I guess the liberal in me is I think you have to acknowledge those problems and then say, but that doesn't mean it's not all true. Yes, Robert, this has been so refreshing. And uh, for people who are listening here, Robert J. Hutchinson is the author. He's been praised by one of the greatest scholars of our generation, N.T. Wright. And the book is Searching for Jesus, New Discoveries in the Quest for Jesus of Nazareth and How They Confirm the Gospel Accounts. So what would you say to people who want to learn a lot more about what they've been hearing so far? (laughs) I would say um, read my book because it's a far more exciting story than you realize. And a lot of the things you think you know about Jesus and the Gospels and about Passover and about Easter, uh, it, you may not know. And there are some astonishing discoveries that have been made in just the last couple of years that are just blowing scholars' minds. Uh, you know, we now know, for example, and even skeptics like Bart Ehrman acknowledge that belief in Jesus as the Son of God arose very early, within weeks of the crucifixion. Uh, they used to think that it arose in a century later, as Christianity moved out in the Greek world. As scholars have been able to identify the earliest strata of the New Testament, they go back and they find traces of Aramaic and stuff like that in the Greek text, and they're able to identify the oldest, oldest parts of the New Testament, they discovered, much to their shock, 
that it wasn't the later parts of the New Testament so much that spoke of Jesus as the Son of God and standing at the right hand of God. It was the earliest parts of the New Testament, the parts that go to the 40s and 30s and maybe even to when Jesus was still preaching in Galilee. And that has just blown people's minds. That gospel story has definitely done that, that's for sure, and a lot of people have a hard time understanding it. There are skeptics in this world, and your book, Searching for Jesus, certainly answers a lot of that, so I recommend that people go out and get it. And if for people who want to find out a little bit more about you, certainly buy more of uh, your books, they can go to roberthutchinson.com. We appreciate you being on the program. We learned a lot. Thank you, Michael, very much.